Now, from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics, The Axe Files, with your host, David Axelrod. One of the greatest experiences I had when I worked in the White House was uh, to meet each day with this core of young, creative writers who produced the president's speeches. Uh, and that group was led by John Favreau, j- then just 27 years old uh, when he came to the White House. I had been working with him since he was 23, and he joined Senator Obama's staff. I call John Mozart because at a very early age he could produce masterpieces that bespoke uh, talent and wisdom far beyond his years. Uh, And we uh, recounted some of our experiences together and with uh, Obama and talked about speech writing. John Favreau, welcome. It's uh, not as if we need an introduction to each other, but do you remember the first time that we met? I do remember the first time we met. Um, I tell this story often. Uh, I was 22 years old. I was working for the Kerry campaign, and it was the Democratic Convention in Boston. I was, my job as, I was a deputy speechwriter for the Kerry campaign at the time, and my job was... At 22. At 22. Yeah, they couldn't find, they couldn't afford a real deputy speechwriter because <laughs> things weren't going well in the primary. Um, but anyway, we won the primary. So uh, for the convention, my job was to sit backstage with a bunch of other speechwriters and try to make sure that all the <clears throat> speeches reflected the uh, the message of the Kerry campaign to the extent that there was a message of the Kerry campaign. And, uh, and uh, I get a call from the road where Josh Gottheimer, who was our chief speechwriter at the time, was with Kerry. And he said, you know, there's a line in uh, Barack Obama's keynote address. Barack was a uh, state senator state from senator. Illinois, nominated for the U.S. Senate, and he was the keynote at the Kerry at Convention the Kerry in Convention. Boston. Yes. And so uh, they're like, oh, so Obama's got a line in his in his keynote address that Kerry wrote in his uh, in his acceptance speech. And I was like, oh, that's a coincidence. He's like, yeah, well, we need to get rid of the line. I'm like, oh, how are you going to do that? He's like, well, you're, you're going to go do it. <laughs> so they asked me. So I, I, they're like, well, you know Gibbs. Robert Gibbs was at the time working for Barack Obama, but previously had been my boss on the Kerry campaign uh, before leaving the campaign. So they're like, you know Gibbs. He's practicing with Obama right now. Why don't you go down the hall and, and ask him to take out the line? So that was a great, great task for me. Do you remember the line? I do. It was the line, so it was the end of the red state, blue state riff. said, there are no red states or blue states. There's just the United States of America, all of us pledging allegiance to the red, white, and blue. I believe that was so, Yeah, that was Something roughly like that. it, but that's how it culminated. It that's was, how the he whole... He played off of the red state and blue state and said, all of us pledging allegiance to the red, white, and blue. Right, right. Loved the line. He loved the line. It was a good line. Yeah. It remains a good line, I think, as, as he's often said. Yes. Um, so I walk into the I walk into the room and I think Obama's practicing uh, on teleprompter for the one of the first times um, and Gibbs is there and I go up to Gibbs and I said you know 
here's what happened. Could, would you mind him taking out the line? And Gibbs said, I'm not, I'm not telling him. It's his favorite line. You go tell him. So I walk up to Obama and uh, I like sheepishly mumble something about the line. And he kind of stands like an inch from my face and looks at me. And he's like, are you trying to tell me I have to take out my favorite line in the speech? And uh, I think at that point I might have lost consciousness. And then um, I was there. I remember this. And then, I remember well, this doe-eyed, crew-cutted kid coming in <laughs> and trying to shake us down for our favorite line. Well, that's when I met you. And then, yeah. and then you pulled me aside and said, "David Axelrod, uh, why don't we why don't we go out and and rewrite the line together?" And so then you and I—that was our first collaboration together. You yes. and I stepped outside in the hall and we uh, rewrote the line. So after after you left, <laughs> he fulminated for a while. <laughs> In, I heard that. In fact, after the session, he was still angry. And he said, they're stealing my favorite line. It's totally outrageous. Uh, who is this kid anyway? But um, uh, I pointed out to him that we were going to be, we had a chance to talk to 18 million people thanks to Kerry and the opportunity to speak. So it was probably worth the trade-off. I'm not sure he was convinced. And the speech seemed to go pretty well without yeah, him. Yeah, no, it was, a, it was an okay speech. Yes. Um, yeah. And then he didn't. So much later in 2000, when he hired me in 2005 in the Senate office, he did not remember that was me or, or I may not have been hired. And then it was a year after that in the Senate office, we were sort of hanging around talking, reminiscing, Obama, Gibbs, me, a couple other people. And uh, they start talking about the, sto- the, the speech. And Obama turns to Gibbs and he goes, do you remember that kid who came in <laughs> and told me to take the line out? And I was like, yeah, that was me. He goes, what? I would have never hired you if I knew that. <laughs> so, obviously, you went on to become a great collaborator, minorly of mine, majorly of his. Um, and uh, But I think uh, folks would be interested in knowing how the hell you got there. 22 years yeah. old, you, 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 you say <laughs> you were there by default because the campaign was down on its luck and couldn't afford to pay a real speechwriter. But it's obviously more than that. When did you when did you realize that this was something that you wanted to do? Uh-huh. So I was um junior year at in college. I went to Holy Cross and they had a uh DC internship program. And so I ended up uh interning in John Kerry's office. And You were from Massachusetts. I was from Massachusetts, home state senator. Um, actually, it's it's funny how I even ending up there was by chance. I applied. I wanted to be in Paul Wellstone's office because I was, you know, I had read his book. I thought he was amazing, and I sent an application. Paul Wellstone, the very very progressive senator from Minnesota. Yes, and uh, and then Ted Kennedy's office because he's my home state senator and Kennedy and and I really didn't know much about John Kerry at the time because I wasn't very familiar with politics. I wasn't a big you know political political guy back then. Um, and those applications ended up getting lost because of the anthrax scare in, in Capitol Hill. And there was already... A Yours didn't actually have anthrax in it. No, I did not. Yes. No, I decided to hold off on Seems that. Seems like a bad way to get a yeah. job. <laughs> <laughs> um, but we had a, stu- a Holy Cross student was in Kerry's office anyway. And he said, oh, it's been great. Why don't you come do this? So we just so I, I, went, I went there uh, spring semester. And because I didn't... They said you, you could check off a, an issue that you wanted to work on. Or if you didn't know which issue you wanted to work on, you just could say press... And I didn't know which issue I wanted to work on, so I said, "All right, I'll I'll do press." And it was great because all the legislative interns were in some small mailroom in another, you know, uh, down the hall, and 
the pre- as a press intern, I sat right next to David Wade, who was John Kerry's communications director and chief speechwriter at the time. And it was spring of 2002, so they were getting ready to plan a presidential campaign. And Wade gave me all this opportunity to do some writing. So I would, you know, edit constituent mail and letters and, um, you know, help write talking points and stuff like that. But And you were a writer then. You felt you, 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 this is something that you were good at from... And yeah, at that point in college, I had been, um, I was opinions editor at our college newspaper. So I've been writing columns and they started becoming more political as I, you know, I was a political science major and in 2002, the Iraq War was being debated on campus, and so I started writing columns about that. So I was I, for or against? I was against. I was against. But it's interesting. Holy Cross is that obviously didn't slip into your carry stuff. No, but I think my first column though was actually um, complaining about the anti-war movement at Holy Cross because I thought that the whole no blood for oil thing that was like running around campus was sort of silly. And I thought there should be better arguments. It was sort of my first foray into like holier cross than thou. Holier cross than thou. Yeah. It's like why I'm a you know more of a Democrat than a than a, a far lefty. Um, but anyway, so one night Wade says Kerry uh, wants to place an op-ed in the Boston Herald for Martin Luther King Day, and um, you know about civil rights and the progress we've made and the progress we still have to make. And you know why don't you go home and take a shot at it? And I thought, you know, it was like the coolest thing in the world. And so I went home that night and stayed up till all nighter. Yeah, three in the morning. Wrote this up bed, sent it to to David, and didn't hear anything back. And thought, you know, he must have just figured it was horrible. And then uh, two days later, I opened the Herald, and there's like two paragraphs from my op ed <laughs> for my draft that were made the final op ed. And I thought. Like this is really cool. I could see myself doing this. This is fun. Like so, that was sort of the moment when I was still in college that I thought maybe like speech writing was, you know, something that I might like to pursue. You come from a progressive home. Your folks were. I, I do. Yeah. Well, my my father is from Manchester, New Hampshire, and he's one of nine. Um, and his father, my grandfather, was a Republican state rep in New Hampshire, and most of my father's sisters. Grandfather's still around. He's not. Mm-hmm. Um, most of my father's uh, seven sisters uh, were all Republicans. And he, you know, they all gave him a lot of crap for moving to Massachusetts and, and marrying a, a Democrat. And my father became, my father voted, his first vote was for Nixon. And then he became much more liberal since then. And now he's a, uh, he's quite a, he's quite a liberal. And so is my mother. But I remember, I mean, my mother's maiden name is DeMarcus. And her family's originally from Lowell. So one of my first political memories was 1988, uh, Dukakis from Lowell running for president. That that was that generated uh, a lot of excitement in my family. Yeah. And I was seven at the time, but that was I, I can remember that that race. And what what uh, what formed you? Obviously, you grow up with these things. Can you imagine, can you think of moments that said that sort of said, yeah, I want to be on this side of the fight. This is what I believe. Yeah, I mean, it went from this is sort this is what my family believes to this is what I believe. I, I think at Holy Cross when I was, I was, uh, went to school there because, um, you know, I, I started doing some work in the community and I remember, uh, I started, started a, a program called the welfare solidarity project and we'd go to the welfare office in Worcester. And that was during an era of welfare reform and, you know, uh, welfare reform was deemed successful. The more people you got off the rolls, but sometimes that meant that welfare recipients were not having their rights recognized. 
So some public interest lawyers trained some Holy Cross students to sit in the welfare office. And as welfare recipients were being rejected for aid and food stamps and transportation, we would go advocate for them and tell them what their legal rights were and bring them to lawyers. And it was... I enjoyed it very much, but it was also frustrating because sometimes there was nothing we could do. And I remember thinking to myself, like, you know, the ultimate way to fix this is changing the decisions that we make, changing the policies that we have. And that and politics is probably the best route for that. Were most of these uh, most of these folks African American? Uh, in in Worcester, it was uh, Worcester, Massachusetts, is where I went to school. It was a mix. It was African American, Hispanic, and a lot of working class whites. Uh-huh. And was your community growing up diverse? It was not. No, I was in you know a, a probably upper middle class, very small suburb of Boston, fairly Republican actually, um, and so it really wasn't. It wasn't. It wasn't until Holy Cross that you know that's where my political ideology was shaped. Talk about uh, our friend. Uh, Barack Obama and yes. your collaboration. Um, uh, you obviously you you start you start. He is a speechwriter, right? He is a great speechwriter. Um, that's one of the things that you know I learned when I was working for him as a candidate for the Senate. I mean, and you read his books; he's incredibly literate, and he has a sense of structure about speeches. Talk a little bit about how he approaches speeches first. Yeah, what well, I mean, what has always I think what impressed me most about his writing style is what you just mentioned, which is the structure and the logic. I mean, everyone would say, oh, it's, you know, the rhetorical heights he reaches and, you know, the language. But and and I think that's incredible as well. But you can tell that he is a lawyer, a professor at heart in the way he thinks about the structure and logic of a speech. So I always use the example um, when he called me to talk about the race speech in Philadelphia during the 2008 campaign. Um he, it was a long day of campaigning. He'd done like four or five events on that Saturday. He called me at 10 o'clock at night. And he said, you know, um, I just have some stream of consciousness thoughts on this speech. And then, you know, I'm going to ask you to do a draft tomorrow. And then I'll, I'll work on it, you know, that night. And uh, his stream of consciousness thoughts turned out to be an a entire speech. logical structure outline of the speech. Yeah, and it you was... Know. I want to say one is going to be this, one A is this, two, two B. I mean, he went through the whole speech in like an outline form. Well, he had been wanting to make that speech for a long time, and I and others sort of bridled him, and then the Reverend Wright story hit, and he felt it was absolutely mandatory that he talk about race and put Reverend Wright in that context. I remember saying to him the Friday before the Saturday you mentioned, um, you've got campaign schedules from now until yeah. Tuesday. He wanted to do it by Monday or Tuesday. I said, what are you going to write this? He said, I know what I want to say. Just set it up. And he clearly had been thinking about it. And when you think about the fact that he wrote a book uh, that was all about race and his search for his own identity, not surprising that he would have that in his head. What is surprising is that a guy under maximum pressure right. could uh, summon up a, an orderly presentation um, off the top of his head, essentially. Complete. And and I remember I found out that he wanted to give the speech Saturday morning and on our morning conference call, and everyone said, okay, you know, Favreau, go into the office and start working on it. Because the speech was going to be Tuesday, Tuesday. morning. Yeah. Saturday <laughs> speech was, was wonderful, Tuesday. Wonderful There's Saturday morning. Not a word written. I muted the phone for my reaction. <laughs> Probably the most important speech of the yeah. primary campaign. And I remember you walked into my office... Uh, 
that Saturday afternoon, and uh, I, I told I was like, I can't write this. I can't start writing this until I talk to him. It's just too personal. Because you, I think you and I, you know, batted back and forth some ideas like we usually do, but in this case, it needed to come from him first, right. and mostly, you know, which it did. Well, I often tell the story about arriving in Philadelphia, because the speech was set up for the Constitution Center. Uh, I always say we set it up for a large stage. If you're going to go down, I figure, let's go down on a large stage. Constitution Center in Philly, we arrive, <laughs> we arrive in Philly on a... Um, on Monday night at like 9.30, mm-hmm. and he goes to his room basically to finish a speech that wasn't done. Right. And uh, he emailed us in the middle of the night, as he often does. that email? Us. Yeah. And uh, I'm standing there in the dark reading this speech uh, on my BlackBerry, which was a device we used to use in those days. <laughs> and uh, he uh, and I realized, you know, what a stunningly powerful piece it was. I emailed him back. I said, this is why you should be president, because to be able to produce that under that kind of pressure was remarkable. Well, and I always think about that speech for its honesty, like an authenticity when I, you know, sometimes I talk about how the importance of authenticity in writing. And that's the best example, because if you look at that speech today, you know, the lines that I helped contribute were lines that, you know, any politician could have said. You know, and lines that he wrote that no one could have written for him were things like, you know, I can no more disown him than I can my white grandmother, right? Right. <laughs> who's, who's, who's uttered racial stereotypes that made me cringe. Well, right? you could have written a line about your white grandmother. I could have. Sure. Um, but yeah, if I had given that to him, I would have thought he would have fired me. <laughs> um, but I remember he, he, he called me after that speech and he said, you know, I don't know if I can, uh, if I can get elected saying the things I did about race today, but I also know that if I'm too afraid to say what I believe, I don't deserve to be elected. Right, and that was what he told me before he went out to make the speech. Talk about uh, other aspects. One, one of the things that struck me about your collaboration, in addition <clears throat> to everything else, you're a, you're a pretty fi- uh, fair musician. Mm-hmm. Um, and one thing that strikes me in my work with him and with you <clears throat> on message and on speeches is uh, the, the play of words against each other, the rhythm of a speech. I know. There's almost a musical element to this. Uh, a sentence can be completely different depending on the ordering of the words. And he's very conscious of that. Yes. And it's, I wish I could explain how we come up like it's it's so subconscious and i guess that's how i've that's how i learned to play piano as well i sort of taught it i learned by ear um but i i will say that at the end of every speech process usually usually the substance of the speech and most of the language is set you know a day before we're not like super last minute people but if we're playing with the speech at the very end it's usually uh the president and i you know we're we're looking at semicolons and dashes and we're thinking about rhythm and he's always we're specifically thinking about the rhythm at the end of a speech because it should build it should have a crescendo i mean it is it's a lot like a piece of music right and a lot of it you just it's how it sounds i mean that's the difference between writing and speech writing right because the way something appears on the page is much different than obviously the way it sounds right and i think probably I imagine the president learned this as well as I did as I started speech writing that, you know, there is a difference, right? And when you're writing, you tend to write longer sentences. They tend to meander more and stuff like that. And when you give a speech, they're clipped. 
there's more de- declarative sentences, there's there's more pauses, right? And so there's just certain things you do that make a speech more lyrical than something that you write down. You know, the odd thing was, um, I uh, remember very clearly when he wrote the uh, the speech for the convention, it was his work. Mm. <coughs> and uh, I remember very clearly when he wrote the speech for the convention, and he um, then started practicing the speech. This was at the beginning I mean, people think that Barack Obama arrived full, like fully formed with all of these skills. Yeah. And um, he, the, the speech on the page was beautiful. His delivery was terrible because he thought that he had to shout the speech. And he had this idea in his yeah. head of what a, what, a, what a speech in a convention hall should sound like. And uh, Michael Sheehan, who was the, uh, uh, sp- the speech coach, the the uh, very fine uh, who we we use throughout right. the presidency. Michael uh, got a hold. I told Michael this was a problem. He was coaching everyone at the convention, <clears throat> and he told Obama, "You know, let the microphone do the work. You're having a conversation, and mostly with the people in the television audience, not with the people in the hall." And he got it very quickly. And by the end, it was as everyone remembers it. It really was conversational, but that wasn't. Uh, that wasn't his first instinct on these no. things. and so. it's, not, it's, it's not most people's. I mean, I, it, that is one thing that I've learned most over the years, and and you taught me this as well, is that speeches should be as conversational as possible, right? I think every writer uh, and speechwriter makes the mistake early on that you overwrite, right? That you're trying to, you know, write something for the history books, have this big, you know, in, inspiring quote or whatever. And the most effective speeches are... The speeches that are conversational and how they're written and how they're delivered and there's a simplicity to them right i mean and and as you point out an authenticity and i think those are related i don't yeah. think you I, should and you should be speaking like i tell people you should be speaking like you're having a conversation with someone at like one person at a table right like you're not even when he spoke before crowds of thousands and thousands of people right you know yes we can right that's a pretty simple phrase. <laughs> Those are three very simple words, right? Like, and then, you know, it's just the way you, the inspiration and the power comes from the content of what you're saying. It doesn't necessarily, I, I always say that the story should come before the words, right? The story is much more important. And I don't think we were ever really great at coming up with sound bites and catchphrases and, you know, lines that are etched in stone, but we were pretty good at coming up with, all right, what's the story that we're trying to tell here? And not just the story we're trying to tell, but also stories that animate that story. Exactly. Real, live, human right. stories, whether out of history or out of um, his his interactions with people along the way in the country. How much of your time was spent, was spent scouring for these stories that can, can animate this? I think of one speech that maybe the first one that we really collaborated on was the speech that he gave at the— Democratic Convention in Florida at the end of 1985. Oh, I'm sorry, 2005. Sorry, Whoa. we're in a time capsule here, brother. <laughs> I was uh, only just four. like Back to the Future. <laughs> um, nine, uh, 2005, and it was a, actually an important speech because he wasn't going to make the speech. It was sort of a beginning <clears throat> signal that hey, something's changing here because right. he accepted this invitation and he wanted it to be an impactful uh, speech. And you found a story. Uh, 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 about a woman, yes, who and that animated really the speech. What lifted 
the speech in a big way. Talk a little bit about that. And how do you discover these things? Well, I can't. Now I'm having trouble. She was the hundred and. Well, that was Aunt. Well, for the for the. I'm remembering we now we have, in Nixon Cooper. Remember in Nixon Cooper yeah. from Grant Park. That's the one that I I remember from 2008. I thought I think the one from that 2005 speech he had met in Chicago, at some point before that. It may have been before my time. Well, rather than yeah, rummage through the sort of veiled memories we have on the on which uh, story went where. Talk about stories generally and how mm-hmm. much of your time was spent looking for stories to animate these speeches. All the time. And we that was, uh, you know, I, I would do it. All the other speechwriters would be looking all the time. And also our, um, uh, eventually in, in the White House, we had a researcher, our assistant, Laura Dean, and um, and Kyle O'Connor, who both worked for us. You know, they, they spent most of their time scouring local news, right? Because that's where you find inspiring stories. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's hard to find them in the national news. Yeah. Um, but if you look at... Unless lo- you're looking for one about Donald Trump. Right. <laughs> But um, you know, you. I think there's there's so many stories that in many of the different uh, State of the Union addresses he he delivered that we found in local newspapers on on local you know on websites and it's that's my favorite part too and especially in the State of the Union because when I would sit in my office and watch Laura call someone who was going to be in a speech, um, you know, the reaction was it was it was pretty incredible. I mean that that my actually my most inspiring memory was on the night of the 2008 election and it was before we won and I had found I had seen that story about um, this woman named Ann Nixon Cooper who had waited in line in Atlanta for three hours that day to to cast her ballot and she was 106 years old and so we ended the speech by sort of tracing all the progress she'd seen in her century uh, on earth and um, and right before you know as they're starting to call the states uh, someone points out to me you know we should probably call in Nixon Cooper and let her know she's about to get a bit of a shout out in uh, in this speech. And so our researchers find her number. I call her up, and she's a very frail woman. Answers the phone, and she uh, and I, I explain to her who I am and what's about to happen. And that you know the the first black president of the United States is about to mention her in his victory speech. And she kind of pauses and she goes, "Will it be on television?" It's like, yeah, yeah, it's going to be on television. And then she's like, uh, "What? What channel will it be on?" And I said, "It will be on all the channels." And um, and then she she started crying, and uh-huh. and I did too. And um, and she said, "You know, I'm so happy. I'm so proud. Finally." And then right then they called Ohio, and everyone's like cheering, and I'm still on the phone with her. And yeah. that's you know, that's the thing. That's the stuff that you remember. You know, of so. What are the um, uh, of the many many speeches that you worked on? Mm-hmm. What are the other ones you, you mentioned? The Reverend Wright, the race speech in Philly. Right. What are the others that stand out in your mind as sort of the apex of your experience, your collaboration with um, the president? I always think about the Jefferson Jackson dinner speech in two thousand seven. Um, just because, honestly, it was. I mean, to, this is to tell this story. It's uh, so. You know, he announces in February of 07, and then we had a fairly rough spring and summer. We're losing to Hillary by uh, a significant amount. And, you know, remember the the knock against him by Hillary and the media was that, you know, he was all flash and no substance. And so some of his stump speeches would, you know, become like... Yeah, he overcompensated. He overcompensated. They were yes. like 40-minute, like, laundry lists of issues. And... 
in the fall, we knew that the Jefferson Jackson dinner speech was the one opportunity for all the Democratic candidates running to be on. It's, a, it's an event. It's, it's, a a, event. it's, it's yeah. the big event of the Democratic caucuses. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, it's, it's in a Roman Coliseum-type environment in, in Des Moines in the fall, and it's really the kickoff to the, the final stretch to the caucuses. All the candidates there, no notes, no podiums, no teleprompters, right. on, a, on a stage that they— uh, no, no podium. Did I say that? And they walk on the stage and essentially make their case. So it's it's really a uh, it's it's as exacting a public forum as as you're going to have in a campaign. Yeah, and it was and the best part about it was the speeches could only be ten minutes. There was like a time limit, and so it forced us all to come up with a you know tight argument about why he should be president. And but I it was remember, also animated by our notion that he had to draw a sharper contrast. Right. And um, that uh, process began actually before the J.J. We had the, a longer version in South Carolina. that uh, Right. That became the J.J. Right. Um, but I just remember, I mean, you remember the number of drafts we went through of that speech. Yes, I remember torturing you. Tortured me. He tortured me. Yes. <laughs> it's nice of you to be here, actually. <laughs> no, um, but it was, I mean, you, as always, you were right. Um, but but Adam Franklin, Ben Rhodes, and I stayed up till three in the morning. Two of our other great speechwriters. Two speech of our other writer. great speechwriters. So many nights working on drafts of that speech that we'd send to you, and then, you know, you would say, um, I think it sort of missed the runway on this one. We're getting closer. <laughs> and, and then we finally got that, we kind of did a test run, and that, in South Carolina, and I remember the president said to you, I think, um, I really like this, this should be the JJ, but we had to cut it down to 10 minutes. And so I went into the office at, uh, at midnight, because it was the night that he had done Saturday Night Live. And so I walked down, back down to the office, and I stayed up all night to, um, uh, to cut that down to 10 minutes. And I don't know, it was the, and, it, and it worked well. And he, yeah, it did. He memorized sometimes, it. Sometimes, sometimes, cutting speeches you know that convention speech that he gave in boston was like 25 26 minutes and uh they wanted him to do eight which was preposterous yeah and uh we agreed on like 17 and 17 was plenty long enough the sometimes editing speeches makes them stronger and not weaker almost always cutting i i think that i think anything over 20 minutes at this point is you know people's attention spans today are so short yeah. And you know, you just it's it's actually it's easier to write a long speech than a short speech. Yeah. Because you can be less disciplined about it. Well, and we had our battles with the the president at times when he yeah. he would come in with uh pages and pages of additional material written in in longhand on yellow legal pads and it was like this this is going to add like 15 minutes to the speech. And most of the time, although he would usually say I looked at it. I think this is probably only going to add about a minute, a minute 30. You're like, well, I see like seven pages there. Um, So what are some of the other speeches that uh, 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 really noteworthy? Tell a story about our adventure together before the convention speech in 2008. Oh, my God. Yeah, that was a fun one. So the the 2008 convention speech, when he accepted the nomination, um, he... He he took a well. We had a bunch of drafts went back and forth. Well, he you and he I. did a draft, right? That's what, so that happened, yeah. and that didn't. And, and that was decided, a that was a lengthy and ponderous. It was tome, a tome. tome. <laughs> it was yes. a tome. You called yes. it a tome then. Yes. Um, and he and so he delivered the tome to us uh, like two nights before the convention, maybe three, and the next day we all went on the road together, and you know I remember 
flying to Montana on that plane, and it was horrible turbulence. And I'm we, not we were a great starting, flyer. I think, in Kansas City, and we, yeah. we were flying around the country, making our way toward the convention, at which sixty thousand people were awaiting us in an open stadium for a speech that was not written. And the and the entire time, I'm just cutting, just cutting that draft, and like, and trying to edit and shape, and uh, the night. It was two nights before? Yeah. Uh, it was the night that Hillary the... gave her speech. Yes. Um, I remember we were in his hotel room, uh, and he said, you know, I think all the substance is here, but we still need a spine in the speech. There's got to be something that holds it all together, which is very typical of him, right? You know, he wants a structure and a logic to it. And so, you know, I think we came up with the theme the of, promise of Promise of America. And uh, and then at that point, it was late at night, and and both of you turned to me and said, okay, well, now go write it. <laughs> and the I most just... pathetic thing I've ever saw <laughs> was you with your computer and like a six-pack of Red Bull headed to your room to write this draft. It was so sad. <laughs> um, but we, we finished it. And, you know, it, it, it... You came in the morning, you produced what was probably 80% of what we what we ended up using. And the thing about... I think working with him on speeches, you would agree, as gifted as you are, that I always had this sense that if we gave him something good, that oh, he could make sure. it better. For sure. You, that, that was a bad... Because people always ask me, you know, is it really hard writing for Obama because he's such a great writer? And in a way it is because, you know, you always, he has high standards, right? But the easy part about it is that, is that I always... There was a backstop where I always knew that if I gave him a draft that was a, a really good, solid draft, he would add his magic to it. You know, um, and it was just I remember from that story, too. He was just such a wonderful person to work with. Like, I remember the night before the convention speech, after I had been up all night the night before, he was with you and me and all the speechwriters and he was practicing. And it was like 1030. And uh, someone said, oh, should we go another round? And he looked at me and goes, you should go to bed. He goes, because I kept you up way too late last night and your parents would be so mad at me if they knew how little sleep you were getting you know like he just he actually cared about all of us um even as he was under tremendous pressure to deliver the speech of his life talk about what to me was one of the most impactful moments that we spent with him which was when he got to the reference in his convention speech about dr king because his speech was on the 45th anniversary of the uh of the speech on the Lincoln right at the Lincoln Memorial on the Mall of Dr. King's his most famous speech and so we had to struggle because we didn't want to make that so overt as to make it central to the speech but it 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 demanded noting that some some not not anyone at this table didn't want to mention it at all <laughs> yes <laughs> which i thought was Okay, I think people are going to know it's the anniversary, and yeah. it's going to be a little. Well, but we didn't want his, to do it subtly. And, the, and and you know, he was the he was sort of the apotheosis of progress, standing there right. as a major party candidate for president, African American. Something Dr. King uh, hinted at or or hoped for, but was a long way from a reality in uh, 1963. So you guys uh, worked up some uh, very uh, nice and subtle language. Yeah. Never mentioned Dr. Touch. King. Right. We said we talked about the preacher yeah. uh, standing on the mall all those years ago. Um, and, you know, it had been in the draft and, you know, he'd seen it for a while. But we practiced the day of the of the speech and um, he, he it was you and me and him and a couple other people. And he Shan, and Shan. Yeah. And he arrived at that part of the speech and he stopped because he he started tearing up. Actually he asked for a- asked for time to be. And went off by himself into the restroom yeah. 
to collect himself. It's first time I've the, ever seen him do and that. And the last and time, the last. I, don't, I don't think I ever have seen him. He's such a collected person. And he said, I, it's, I mean, the, the, the reality of this is really, really, really hit home in, in that part of the speech. Yeah. So uh, that, was a, that was an incredible moment. That was, that was an incredible moment. And then the lighter moment uh, that happened before <laughs> that, as he started the speech yes. um, during that practice session, he, he gets to like the first opening big line and there's a knock on the door and uh, it's, it's someone from the hotel room service. And they said, uh, does someone order a Caesar salad in here? And we're all just looking like, who the hell is this guy? And Axe is just like, yep, that's yeah. me. Hey, guys got to eat. Okay. <laughs> guys got to eat. I remember Obama said, hey, I'm sorry to interrupt your lunch with my convention speech. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that was another noteworthy moment <laughs> from, uh, uh, from that. Um, there, uh, now, you, you and I and this wonderful group of speechwriters mm. whose a photo, photograph I have sitting on my credenza um, of that group. We used to meet every day and talk about all the speeches that we needed to get done, and we'd, we'd brainstorm every day, which was the best part of my day in the White House. But there Me were also too. times when uh, when things happened that required you to write quickly, that there were events, breaking right. events. Uh, talk about some of those where the president has to address the nation on something completely unexpected mm-hmm. and you have to churn it out very, very quickly. Yeah. The, the one I always remember is uh, wake up one morning, check my BlackBerry, no emails, go into the shower, come out of the shower two minutes later, and there's like 45 emails in my BlackBerry. And I was like, what, who, what happened? And it was they announced that he won the Peace Prize. Oh, my God, yes. And he needed to go out into the... I mean, which it was completely we, unexpected. which was really a, something of a mixed blessing from our standpoint, because there were a lot of people going to say, "What did he win it for?" Right. He had just become president, uh, and uh, and he recognized that as well. Uh, he didn't believe Robert Gibbs when Gibbs called him as press secretary to tell him that he had won the Nobel Prize, and he said, and he, he accused Gibbs of playing a prank on him. Right. Uh, <laughs> And Gibbs said, "I assure you, sir, I won't, wouldn't wake you up at six in the morning to play a joke on you. <laughs> you, you won the prize." And, and he said, "She said, all I wanted to do was pass health care." Right. <laughs> uh, but we knew that he, you know, it was a trickier speech. Oh, that well, that's why it was so. I mean, it wasn't your typical something happened, quick statement, and let's get it done. It was, it's, it's fraught what he says about this, and yet he has to make a statement fairly quickly. And so I ran into the White House as fast as I could, and me and you and, and Ben Rhodes huddled around a computer and tried to bang out a statement in like a half hour. Um, and I remember we started to because I think, I don't know if it was Sasha or Malia yeah. had said to him, hey, Daddy, you won, the, you won the Nobel Peace Prize, and it's Bo's birthday, and it's a three-day weekend. <laughs> yeah, which was so great because it really put everything in yeah. in uh, perspective. And so he, we included that in the... Yeah, that helped uh, in the remarks. What do you think about um, speech speech making in politics uh, today? You know, you mentioned when I, I in the in the when uh, Obama was giving that speech in two thousand four in Boston, mm-hmm. I was standing behind Jeff Greenfield, mm-hmm. the old uh, journalist and and one time speechwriter for Bobby Kennedy, yeah. uh, and I saw him turn to Stephanopoulos, George Stephanopoulos, who he was standing with saying this is a great freaking speech. He didn't quite say freaking, but... Uh, and, uh, and he said, uh, 
you know, so many political speeches now are just a bunch of applause lines cobbled together. Yeah. But this is an argument where where you started. What do you think the quality of political speech making is today? I don't think it's great. I mean, I don't, I don't know. You still write them on a freelance basis, right? I do, I do, and I, I still, I mean, you know, it's, it's, it's more difficult when it's not Obama, but um, I still try to keep all the lessons I learned in mind about telling a story and simplicity and and all that, and and not stringing together a bunch of applause lines. Um, but I do think, like, I think that fear and caution are sort of the greatest enemies of effective speech making. And I think that manifests itself in a lot of one-liners that politicians feel are safe because they came from a pollster or a consultant or something like that. And they feel like, okay, I can just say this and get away with it. Because to really deliver a, a memorable speech, you have to take some risks and you have to speak you know, you have to speak well, and the you truth. have to be a revealing of yourself as you well. This goes to the authenticity <clears throat> question. Totally. So let me. It it, it begs the question. Uh, Hillary Clinton, brilliant in so many ways. We saw it at the mm-hmm. hearings. We saw it in the debates. Yeah. Uh, not a great. This is my own coloration. You don't have to. I, you're younger I happen, than I am. You may. You may I happen to agree. <laughs> not not a great speechmaker. Why? I don't. I don't know. But I know that. Um, I mean, is it that caution? Is I that- think it's the caution. I think it's. Uh, I mean, it's, it's funny too because when she when she speaks about individual policy issues, it's almost it, it's she's a better speaker because she sort of digs in and she and feels she, comfortable she in feels, that. In that, that's her terrain. I think it's stringing it all together, in, in terms of like the big vision stuff, and it was it was very striking to see her both in the debate. And in the Benghazi hearings, because she was so skilled and right. so good in at that, in that forum, right? Yeah. But that's also a forum where she's being challenged, and whenever she's challenged, she's she's excellent, right, at responding. But I also think that you have to suspend. You know, you, you're in the moment, so there's not a lot of time to fret right. about about. Well, and, that's that's part of it, I think. Yeah. You know, I think if if someone told her like just go speak now, <laughs> she might be better than all the preparation she does because I think. You know, I think there's a lot of caution there. I think there's a lot of concern that she... And look, she's been in public life for so long that the re- the reason that I think politicians have that caution is because they've been burned so many times before. And at some point, you have to th- you have to say to yourself, fear of the gaffe, of committing the gaffe, has to be less than fear of appearing wooden and inauthentic, right? Because both... There's risk to whatever you do, right? If you're going to speak authentically and honestly, of course there's a chance you're going to say something that gets criticized and you're going to get raked through the coals. And like, and that's happened to Hillary many times. It's happened to Obama. It happens to every politician. But you've got you to say to yourself that the bigger, the bigger risk is not revealing your true self and who you are. You had, uh, how old were you when, you when you first got to the White House? I was 27. 27. So mm-hmm. you're chief speechwriter at 27. And we had this cadre of speechwriters, many of whom were younger than you. Yeah. Um, and... Uh, which was extraordinary. How did how did this group of kids essentially write with the kind of wisdom that's required, or the the, the from the experience that's required uh, yeah. of a of a president? I think you learn to. I mean, you need to approach the job with incredible humility, and um, you know you can't have pride of authorship, right? Especially because you have to you have to know what you don't know which was a lot. <laughs> and so, you know, we get to the White House and we start writing about the financial crisis. 
I'm not an economics major, but fortunately, you know, we have Larry Summers and Tim Geithner as pretty good teachers. And so you seek out, you know, you have you have this wonderful range of brilliant people to choose from, to learn from, right? And so you constantly ask questions, you constantly seek advice, and, you know, it's just, it requires a lot of listening and learning and not, you know, you don't charge headfirst and just say, oh, I know what I'm doing, don't worry about it. You, you take everyone's advice and you, you know, you just keep learning. You, uh, you guys are dispersed now, and I, uh, some of you are live close together, others yes. are elsewhere. Uh, talk a little bit about what you're doing now and what you see yourself doing uh, down the line, or where are people going to see John Favreau's words? It's a good question. Um, you know, right now I'm uh, running a, a, a small speech writing and communications firm, and uh, so that's been fun to build a business. But, you know, I went you out... Can, you can give it a plug. Fenway, Fenway Strategies. Strategies. That's right. I'm a bad <laughs> Named a after the person. second best ballpark in That's America right, after right. Wrigley Field. Exactly. Um, so I, uh, Tommy Vitor and I, from the White House, we have Fenway Strategies. And then uh, uh, the two of us also worked on, uh, you know, we're working on t- uh, television writing, screenwriting, and um, a little bit. I'm in Los Angeles now, and so I've always been interested in, you know, it's a, it's a new way of telling stories. Um, but, you know... It's been nice to be out of politics for a couple of years. It's been nice to be away from it. But I, I've also realized that I don't think I can ever fully get away from it. I'm still obsessively checking Twitter and I still care so much about these debates. And so I don't know, like down the road, I, I don't know if I can stay out of politics or public life forever. Um, I don't of course, know. There's I'm, a way to marry the two. Uh, there are a bunch of uh, fictional depictions. Well, that's what we're, yeah, we've been, we've been thinking about that for sure. Um, and, uh, so we'll see. We'll see. But well, well, whatever you do, I know it'll be impactful because uh, I've I've seen you up close. So, uh, John Favreau, thanks so much. Learn for from being the here. best. Thank you for listening to the Axe Files. For more podcasts like this, subscribe to the Axe Files on iTunes. And for more programming from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics, visit politics.uchicago.edu. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.